0: Welcome to Diverse Tech Founders, a podcast about the one thing older than capital people like you and me. Now, here's your host, Abraham J. Williamson.
1: Welcome back to the Diverse Tech Founders podcast. I am in the booth now with an adrenaline junkie. In fact, we just left from riding motorcycles before here. We may go bungee jumping in Arrowhead Stadium, but I want you to get to know. Nas, Nasir Chris, who is a Venture for America fellow and a venture capitalist who's going to walk us through what makes him different from everybody else you might be listening to now. But Nasir, Nas, tell us about your childhood self and whether or not your childhood self would be friends with you today. Yeah, well, first and foremost, thank you for having me here. This
0: is an incredible opportunity. And I think what you're building with this community is very, very exciting. So thank you for having me here. My childhood self, so I really became an entrepreneur because I just hate being told what to do. <laughs> <laughs> I'm I'm hard-headed, but more so than anything, I think I'm a tinkerer. So I like to figure out multiple solutions to things, like mess with things, kind of figure out how to take them apart, build them back together. And I'm always asking questions, particularly why. Why do things happen the way they do? Why do certain systems exist? Why black versus white? So I think That was what sparked some of my general curiosity growing up. And I think that my younger self would absolutely be friends with current me. If anything, I think current me would be mentoring younger me and could maybe help him accelerate his path a little quicker.
1: Okay. Well, what were you tinkering with? What were you taking apart and breaking and trying to put back together growing up? Yeah, man. I mean, it wasn't even just
0: like toys and stuff like that, which I was doing. I think at a very early age, I started understanding relationships. And came from a home that wasn't as stable, maybe as some others have had. So had to kind of start putting together pieces of what does my identity look like? How do I communicate what that identity is to the rest of the world? How do I vouch for myself within my family? So at an early age, I'd say like the beginnings of some of that was understanding negotiation and being able to kind of vie for myself and understanding, okay, hey, while there might be some components of this that are split up
1: how can I still be a whole person? Okay. So kind of more like communication-wise. So your younger self, would they recognize the individual puzzle pieces for the mosaic of your identity that you built today?
0: <laughs> I don't even know if I do. Like it currently does. But I do think that there are like characteristics for sure that relate
1: to who I am at the core. Okay. Let's focus a little bit more on the tech side because that's kind of the space that you're you're tinkering in today. So what was your earliest experience with technology and with innovation? You mentioned breaking apart, putting back together. But if you were to pinpoint when you really got your appetite wet for technology, when was that?
0: Yeah. So I started my first business at 19 in college, and it was initially built kind of a consulting practice. We had a lot of friends that were creatives, designers, photographers, videographers, all that good stuff, but they couldn't find customers. And so we were like, "Hmm, what if we just built a network of all those people that are our friends and literally went out and also built a network on the other side of small businesses. As we were doing it, we started getting a lot of traction and we're kind of tinkering, so to speak, with how do we turn this into a platform? So now like they can go on and find those opportunities to get connected with those small businesses in our local neighborhood by themselves. And so that was kind of the beginning of really understanding, okay, how do I take a business from just a business to a technology company, to a startup? And that was where the evolution came and being like, OK, oh, wait, there's actual companies out here that already do that or have built platforms and things like that. So that was the earliest exposure. OK, so let's bring
1: it to today. All right. You are a fellow for Venture for America and you are also a venture capitalist. Tell us about where you are today and how who you are today kind of all came together from 19 I'd mm-hmm. like, to reach this point from. I,
0: so after building that business, that got, we built a network and we got some attention from it, from like different technologists in the community and stuff. And so that actually opened the door for me to get other opportunities with other startups. So while I was building my own, I was also simultaneously helping seven other startup founders build their own companies, which gave me a breadth of experience in terms of being an operator and understanding like how to grow a successful startup. I translated that experience into being employee number one at a tech stars company. And so it was an insured tech company based in New York city was there for about three years and was helping them grow that business exponentially on the road every week, figuring out what we had to do to kind of tweak our customer funnels, things like that. And then ultimately raising capital. And that was the first time that I had been exposed to venture. And I was like, Oh, this is interesting. Right? So up until then I had had what, four years prior to just building companies, bootstrapped, mainly with black founders, things like that. And then I go to this Techstars company and I'm working with them and I see them sitting at the table and having conversations and negotiations for millions of dollars. And I was like, huh, that would have been really nice to have when we were building our business or any of those other businesses that I was building. And that's when I started really kind of researching the space and understanding not just what VC is as an asset class and as like a advantage for startups, but also some of the disparities with the types of founders that weren't getting access to that. And so eventually kind of joined venture for America, which is a two year fellowship program to prepare young entrepreneurs to grow and scale their own companies in cities across the U S. And that got me introduced to five elms capital that I was at in Kansas City. It's a billion dollar firm. They do later stage deals. I guess you could say a growth stage. So everything from series A, series C, writing five million to $75 million checks. So got to see that exposure early on, but knew again at my core, my mission was. I want to still be close to the operators because I want to help them build these businesses and I want to help people that look like me. And so that's how we kind of transition into 68 capital, which is where I am currently. We're a Midwest based venture capital firm, $20 million fund. We write 250 K to 500 K, 750 K checks and we help our founders grow and scale. We help them get to that next level and build great businesses, sustainable businesses along the way. So it's been an interesting journey of how I was able to take that operator side and then pivot to here. But This is really where I feel like I'm building a foundation for the future.
1: Right. And your focus is on a particular subset of founders, even though I'm sure that you could invest in anybody. You said something interesting about bootstrapping with the company. And I feel like today bootstrapping is not really sexy anymore. It's not necessarily something that gives you an edge in the same way that it might have even five or 10 years ago. What are you seeing when you encounter startups who have Gone through the, you know, bootstrapping process. I was about to say bootleg, but the bootstrapping <laughs> process. And then those that are waiting out for the bigger, larger checks or trying to tap their friends and family network so they don't have to, you know, invest 50,000 before anybody else comes in and just talk about the whole concept of bootstrapping and how that gives you an advantage or disadvantage today in venture. The, the name of the game
0: really is timing. Like timing is the most valuable currency in building businesses. Right. And so. When we think about raising capital, typically it's because you've already proven some sort of product market fit, you built a repeatable customer acquisition strategy. And now what you're doing is saying, how can I pour fuel in the fire to go faster? Because the people that win are either the cheapest in the market or the fastest to the market. And being kind of the bottom-up approach by being the cheapest will eventually get phased out by the person who was first, because now they're just iterating on the product. And so typically what you're trying to do is find that niche and go very quickly. That all being said, the best investors for your business are customers. And so if you've built a sustainable business, in theory, you should be able to bootstrap it, right? That's not always possible. People need upfront capital and things but i think even from a profile perspective we look for those types of businesses right like the ones that have scrappy founders that have figured out a way to do it and are now generating some early revenue or are solving a mission critical problem for their customers and i think just from a from an investment perspective too when you're sitting down and looking at a cap table it's beautiful to come in and say we could be the first investors here it's an advantage for us too because now we have potential advantages in equity that we might be able to get at that early stage or kind of influence that we might be able to have in terms of advising that business. And as you continue to go through the stages of raising, should you want to do that, having bootstrap only prepares you to be better suited for people down the line. Because growth stage investors, private equity investors, they're going to want more equity. And if you can preserve as much of that equity as possible, it puts you in a place to be much more attractive to investors down the line. So that's broadly like how I would look at it. I think bootstrapping is great. And if you can do it, by all means, me putting on my founder hat, do it. But it's not for everybody. And if you have an idea
1: that you grow very, very quickly, raise capital. So speaking of raising capital, a lot of people listening to this assume that folks on this podcast or in this community at some point will do that, which makes a lot of sense. Uh, when they are doing that, they have their options. They can go to many other funds, those that are focused specifically on underrepresented founders and those where that's not central to their thesis. What are diverse tech founders going to get out of your venture capital experience that would be hard to get elsewhere? I love it. So one thing I would differentiate for us is we focus
0: on what we call undercapitalized founders. So typically undercapitalized, underrepresented, minority are all interchangeably used. We'd like to argue that undercapitalized is a more nuanced term because it covers things that are all encompassing. So it's not just race. It's not just ethnicity, sexuality. It could be things like geography, right? Like you could be a white founder in Iowa, and no one's ever really maybe going to find you because of just pure location. So undercapitalized really covers the gamut of we are looking for all founders that are typically historically left out of that capital allocation pool. But in terms of coming and working with 68 Capital specifically, we have set a mission for ourselves to be the best undercapitalized seed funders in the U.S. And with that, we've built a strong platform for our founders to benefit from. And so some of the things that I can kind of say without giving away too much of the secret sauce, on the front end of our fund, we have an accelerator program called Be Nimble that's two-sided. It helps non-traditional professionals that want to get into tech, build the skills that they need to be able to go and land tech jobs. And it also helps non-traditional business owners turn into founders, right? So think about people that maybe started in D2C businesses or direct consumer or, or beauty or uh, restaurants and things like that. How do we walk you through kind of an incubation process to start thinking scale, to start thinking growth, to start thinking expediting some of those processes? So so that's on the front end. We get our founders ready. What happens then is the ones that come out of the program that are ready to build sustainable high-growth companies get to our fund. At our fund level, not only are we pulling talent in case you want to hire from that accelerator that we have that's called Be Nimble, we're also offering resources to you along the way. And that could be any number of things like books, like practical resources, books that you should be reading, podcasts you should be listening to. It could also be discounts that we have with certain tech stacks, right? So now you want to go from using Excel sheet to using Acelo or HubSpot or Salesforce, discounts for those types of platforms. We build a co-investor network to make sure that you're now talking to people that could potentially lead later rounds. So you're starting to build that network of people. We have kind of a CEO summit where all of our founders come together and they network and they share customer intros. And So we've been very intentional about building this organic community that really uses connections to move our founders forward. And the last piece I'll say to this is that on the far end of our fund, we actually have a sister fund called Allos, 200 million AUM. And so Now, kind of moving through the pieces of our fund, you get an automatic introduction to someone that can write a one to $5 million check as you're hitting those growth milestones. So we've been very intentional in the three-pronged strategy of making sure our founders have everything they need here to go from 100K in revenue or early revenue to a million and beyond
1: very quickly. Got it. So it sounds like you have a pretty good thesis, a pretty good strategy. It sounds great. What evidence of traction
0: this thesis did you see that makes you believe in it to this day? Yeah, I think we didn't see it, which is why we felt like we had to build something sustainable. There are a lot of people that say that they invest in undercapitalized founders, but they're just literally capital on the balance sheet and it stops there. And they just throw a check at something and it checks their diversity box. What they're not doing is supporting those founders throughout the journey of growth, partially because they don't understand the challenges that founders who are underestimated face. And so a lot of it is we're trying to build out a model and prove out that not only is there talent here, not only are there companies that have billion dollar potential, but that there's a whole community that can be affected by investing in these types of founders because there's an economic development play here as well. And so you asked a question about traction and like saying, how how do you even know that this works? Like how do you even, we're proving that now. And I would say, point to some of our growth metrics of our companies in our portfolio that are absolutely crushing it qualify a phone screening platform that helps people move from first call to hire faster. Absolutely killing it. Just kind of close on their seed round. Codelicious, which is a K through 12 science curriculum, helping students learn how to code and better understand STEM. Seed round finished. Are getting attention from up rounds. And we have a many more kind of portfolio companies as well, but we're doing it. And we're showing that these founders not only have the acumen, but when they have the right support, they can
1: hit all those goals. Got it. So 26 years old, global network, people all over. You're right. There's probably an expectation that some people's value is readily identifiable. But who in your personal or professional network has added value in this journey that you didn't really expect? You. <laughs> <laughs> Shout out my blamber. No, <laughs> seriously.
0: I think I've had incredible people like yourself that I've been able to watch And just literally like see how they move, but also have transparent conversations with and ask the hard questions. I would say early on, my grandmother, and my mother are two of the hardest working people I know. Like my mom to this day has two jobs and a side hustle, trying to get her out of that so she can enjoy her life. But we're working on that. And my grandmother, who has just been never one to ask for anything, always one to just show up and do the work. Those were, I think, some of my earliest inspirations to this day. And every time I talk to anybody, I shout out my mentor, Jared Walker. He's a vice president at JP Morgan. And he was the first person, probably met him when I was 18. He was the first person that changed the way I thought about the game and really started to say, hey, here's what you need to look at. Here's how you win, right? Because you're not just playing the game to play. It started instilling some of those, those lessons in me, right? And I think it was good to have a black male figure that was successful in my life to see that I could attain that. By just using my head, by using my brain. And so I point to him, my fraternity brothers, my friends that have been there along the way. I definitely think that I'm only where I am today because of the fact that I've had such a strong ecosystem
1: around me. Okay. So your professional life, personal life, they're sort of flowing back and forth. In what ways have you found it accessible to combine them or to separate them when you need to? How do you navigate that sort of false barrier or legitimate one? I love this question.
0: In terms of where it merges with personal and professional, I think that I'm by no means pursuing influencer status, but I realize the value of building an audience while building a business. And so I've been very intentional about trying to expose my network, my family, my friends to the things that I do. I pretty much exclusively use Instagram, but showcase a lot of things. I'm telling my story and I'm digitally cataloging it. I think that that's been a beautiful thing to see, but it's not for everybody. So on the downside of it, it's there have been very many people that I've had to cut out because either they don't support the mission, believe in the mission, or want to even be involved in the mission. And that's okay, right? Like everybody has their own things that they want to do, but I know how focused I am. And so I think has my ambition cost me some relationships? Yeah, but I also think
1: only in the upside of, the version of me that I want to grow into. For sure. For sure. And that's a tough pill to swallow when people are moving in and out of your life. Uh, just let's stay on Instagram for a minute. Yeah. What would people see on your Instagram that they may not know from all the other media that you have online and interviews and all that? What would they see on Instagram? Yeah, uh like I race motorcycles. So that's like a random
0: thing. I love you, you started the episode with it, but I'm like a huge adrenaline junkie. Uh, I'm not very good at snowboarding, but I liked it. Okay. Jet skiing, like if you go deep in my Instagram, you'll see I, I sprinkle in some like life activity stuff there. I'm a big moto head. So like anything that
1: like you can strap an engine to and go fast, I'm sign me up. Love that. <laughs> Love that. Okay, cool. So we're looking at a lot of founder teams today, sometimes solo founder, sometimes not. Just from your vantage point, having been a founder and now an investor in some companies that are getting it right what is something that you would include in a founder or founder team that you were designing from scratch? So you're designing a co-founder team from scratch. What's something that you would want to make sure is in that pot that is difficult to find or rare to see in the market? Yeah. I feel like I'm mixing up like the Powerpuff girls, (laughs) like the Powerpuff founders.
0: I think it's very hard to find that characteristic trait that makes people want to work with Like some people have this magnetism, where they can step into a room and they can have the craziest idea. By all means, it's not going to work. Like we we could sit down and be like, "Wow, like I see so many things wrong with that." But this person is so magnetic, I can't help but be compelled to them. And I don't know that that's something that you could teach, but that's definitely something that I look for: is how readily can you convince people to work with you? And so when I'm looking at like CEOs or potential founders. I'm always trying to gauge what's their magnetism level, because you're going to need that to attract people to your team to come and work with you for that audacious mission that you have. You're also going to need that to go and get other investors. You're also going to need that to build a brand. And so for me, it comes down to that. And and I think it's a it's partially a personality trait that some people have and maybe others don't necessarily. It comes from knowledge as well. It comes from, I think, overall exposure and experiences, like a lot of life experience. But there are just some founders that have that magnetism. And that's the thing that we get really excited about when we're looking
1: for. Is this the person that we think could go all the way? Wow. That's an intangible that oftentimes gets overlooked. We feel like, hey, the numbers look this way, but you're right there. There's an aspect of humanity that that shows up. I know you've thought about this (laughs) a lot. And so I'm going to ask you straight up and very curious to know how you respond to this. You invest. So people are interested to know what you would do with money that didn't have a string attached to it or expectations around it. So taking both your founder, investor, operator, advisor hat off and just Nas as an individual, we leave this room and i leave a check in here for a million dollars. What are you doing with that? We talked about this a little bit at coffee this morning
0: without strings attached no question invest in the community, specifically the black community. I think there's two sides to creating long-term wealth in our community. One side of it is education. We talked about this as well, non-traditional education. The other side is access to opportunities that allow you to turn that education into a vehicle, particularly a vehicle that then creates dollars. And so for me, it would be what types of Programs, curriculum or schools are we building in the community that help people understand how to grow a business, how to start a nonprofit, how to do your taxes, how to go find a lawyer, practical things that I think we're not taught at our dinner tables growing up per se, or most of ours that are happening across other demographics, I would say. So what does it look like to programmatically kind of create that? And then have it be something that can be spread and replicated in different cities. And then the other side of that is like, okay, cool. Now that we've educated, what are now the programs that they can go into? Are there like scale up programs? Are there like small business programs? Like what do the, what is the medium of those two things create?
1: And that would be the sweet spot. That's what I'd want to do. Got it. You are very pro education and I'm still mulling this thought over. So I'm curious to know how you feel about it. But in my experiences, I've noticed that folks may not really want education like they say they do. When people talk about education, they really want the answer. And I'm wondering, in building a community, investing a million dollars, like curriculum in schools, what do you think about that? Do you think that people are really interested in that process? or Do you think people would rather show up, get the shortcut, get the cheat code, and then leave life to educate themselves? What do you think about that? I think we have to inspire
0: curiosity. And the only way we do that is by exposing people to things that they've never seen. And so we've all seen the basketball player, the drug dealer, make it the rapper, entertainer, whatever. How often have we seen a lawyer come back to the hood? How often have we seen a startup founder come back to the hood? And I think when people are exposed to things, they're genuinely curious. They're either scared or they're curious. Like those are the two kind of natural human reactions when you see something new or experience something new. And so how do we package it in a way where like we can inspire that curiosity so that now people can be hungry for going after that? The problem is not motivation. We have a ton of hustlers in the community. The problem is direction and understanding like where do I put that energy in that hustle? And so for me, I think it comes down to how can we best inspire curiosity so now they can combine that hustle and go after education, right? Like, We just, we just need to change the way it is because to your point, I think nobody wants to sit down and be reading books. I do. I'm a nerd. But like I think broadly, like most people are not like, oh, let me go like spend a thousand dollars on that course, that real estate course. Okay, well, maybe not, but like if I show you this black dude that owns a seven bedroom mansion, would you be curious about how he got it? Would you want to sit down and hear him talk? Would you want to listen to his podcast as he tells you about the process he went through? And that's still education, that's still learning. And yeah, in some part of it is like them just getting the answers, but we've inspired that curiosity. So maybe they got some answers, but if they're really motivated to go get it, now they're going to go seek other answers. And that's still, to me, the education process. Love that.
1: And I'm glad that I still left that conclusion open (laughs) (laughs) for this conversation. Uh, Speaking of conclusions, things that might be helpful to know, you have, in a way, pivoted into venture. I assume like most people do from wherever they came from. But since you began this walk, What's the most profitable piece of advice that you've received that actually manifests in success and quantifiable KPIs? That's a, that's a good question.
0: The first time I met a millionaire, multimillionaire, I guess, I was all over the place. I was pretty young. I had a bunch of ideas of stuff I wanted to do. I'm still at that place where I have a bunch of ideas of stuff I wanted to do. And he said something to me that I never forgot. And he said, you will quantify as much as you want as you start to hone in your focus. And I didn't really understand what that meant until I heard it from another mentor. And what I gathered from all of those is that you will go so much further, so much faster by focusing on one thing and mastering that thing versus trying to do all the other things at once. As you continue to master that thing, you'll create other opportunities to spin off. And so that for me has been the most quantifiable success metric that I could point to because as I started to get very honed in on startups, investing, funding, I saw my growth trajectory start to accelerate and start to go very quickly. And so I would say like, if I could give any advice to anyone, it's identify your passion as early as possible and focus on that exclusively. Because as you continue to grow in that and become a master, we talk about the 10,000 hours, whatever. As you continue to master your passion, the doors for other opportunities are going to start to unlock.
1: Think about very intense. The focus is clear every time, but you shift. What I like is that you can shift from serious to playful, to fun, to focused, intense and all that. And we know that's kind of what it's like in business, right? It's not all serious all the time. So how do you keep it fun personally and also like in your venture activity? I'm probably the least fun person. No, I'm
0: I'm not. I've actually been on record saying that, like, I don't tell jokes well. I think, like, in general, I'm a pretty intense person. I I like thought-provoking conversation stuff. But honestly, like, some of the best advice I've ever gotten, too, was, like, take your work serious, but never take yourself too serious. And I think, like, the people that really know me know that I'm, like, one of the goofiest dudes. Like, I just, I do just dumb things, just occasionally, just because I'm, like, I want to keep it playful. And I think... When I reflect on, like, my 26 years of life, one of the things that I've been keen on is, like, never letting go of my inner child. Mm. Because if I do, then it's like, this stuff stops becoming fun. Like, it just stops becoming enjoyable. And it's like, I don't want to be a bitter old man that has maybe had success or not had success or whatever, but still ends up just crabby or alone, right? Because, like, at the end of the day, we do all this. But if you still end up by yourself, then what's the point So. I try to keep that whimsical kind of like childhood joy going and and just like keep people around me that can keep me youthful and keep me like fun and, and things like that. Have you ever
1: experienced an inner child day? Like have you ever participated? Absolutely. In absolutely. Just
0: straight up, wake up, eat ice cream in the morning, then go to like an indoor trampoline, like play in the ball pit, like literally like just absolutely. I have, I probably have
1: a few days, like a month where I do that just to stay like, just to stay cool, man. Just to stay cool. This is funny. So this is one of my favorite questions, and it varies geographically depending on where folks are because their uh, like taste in art varies. So when you're thinking about getting in your flow, getting in your zone, when you're really tapping into your star player, which artist most aligns with? Getting in that flow or getting that focus. Who do you tap into when you're really at the top of your game? Man. you Type of music artist? Any artist. Yeah. Any artist? Okay, okay. I would say,
0: man, I listen to a lot of Drake. I'm not even gonna lie okay. to you. I really do. Okay. I think when I was younger, like so, I don't know, like even before Take Care, So Far Gone, like all the mixtapes, like I got to grow with Drake as a fan, so to speak, right? And I got to see him go from Degrassi to music and then to mogul and I just resonate with like his lyrics and stuff like you feel the pressure man I know the pressure like I'm saying like it's I I tap into his art specifically because it's just like it feels like a parallel and it's inspiring to see somebody that dropped out of high school like was on TV pivoted from TV to music pivoted from music to business pivoted from business to just entertainment just like as a whole like acting like executive producing like that. To, to see somebody do that from that level and to just make it look good, just package it along the way, I think is some of the cues that I've just tried to pick up and, and emulate in my own sphere of just how I want to tell my story as I'm going through But that's probably my favorite artist overall. I would say like in terms of people that just like inspire me with like fine art, so to speak. I have a few friends that are artists that are just like incredible. Shout um, them out. We want to know. One of my good friends from high school, he's actually working on an expose right now to put up at Art Basel next year. So we're working on that together. I have a couple pieces from him at my home. Dulcinea Herrera, she's Kansas City local, incredible artist, uh, does like self-portraits. And they're, I mean, they are, I think, top-tier artists. And it's really just like about exposure for them to kind of get their stuff out to the rest of the world. But, I mean, seeing my friends who are really creative, be able to take their feelings and
1: thoughts. And put it on a canvas. That's cool. Yeah, that's dope. Absolutely. So you mentioned some local talent here. that You've lived in a few places. You're not originally from Kansas City, although it seems like your adopted home at least at the moment. <laughs> uh, what are you most excited about when it comes to the startup community here? And maybe talk about where we are physically right now. So we are in Spark Co-working Space,
0: which was developed for not just entrepreneurs but small businesses to have a luxurious experience where they could both host events and meet with colleagues or clients or network partners, but also have office space to come in and feel comfortable every day, a nice warm space. I think the community has embraced me significantly, right? Like you talk about adopted home and I couldn't describe it any differently. Like it's its a place where if you have energy and excitement around something and are doing it. The city, the city will back you. The community will back you. And so I've seen just very quickly in the year and a half that I've been here, acceleration, not just in my career, but in my personal life, just in terms of like building deep, authentic, thorough relationships. I'm most excited to see how the city evolves, right? So Kansas City is literally geographically right in the middle of the country. There's comparable cities around us that have exploded over the last couple of years, point to Denver, Boston. And so I think Kansas City right now is at an inflection point where the growth is about to go from, just to put it in startup terms, let's say 2X to 10X in the next 12 to 18 months. We're having a significant amount of investment from the city itself into the entrepreneurship community. There are programs and directors like Dan Smith at Porterhouse KC who are building out small business curriculum to get people more acquainted with understanding how to build strong businesses and stay in business. And so I think when you combine all of the, network players and the organizations and just the city itself wanting to be great you attract a lot of talent attracting talent attracts corporations and now you get corporations dollars now recycling through the community so i'm pumped like i don't know what the ceiling is but i do know that this city is accelerating
1: faster than i've seen any city that i've been in accelerating can you growth. talk about why is so important that the government supports this? I mean, there are examples in other states and cities of governments showing up, but why is Kansas City government so important to the next twelve to eighteen months of growth in the startup ecosystem?
0: So, governments win the contracts to bring in the corporations, and the corporations again bring the jobs. And also, I think the city has a specific role to play when you talk about attracting talent, which also attracts corporations. You don't have the talent here; nobody's going to come here, and so I think. The city's role is how can we create an inclusive environment that allows people to enjoy their life? Ultimately, yes, we all have to work to live, but we want to live and enjoy. And the city has to think through what types of things are here that not only attract people, but keep people. What's the social scene like? And that's not just bars and clubs. Like, What are the sports venues like? What are the teams like? What are the restaurants like? What's the housing like? I think Kansas City, the city of Kansas City is working hard to maintain cost of living, which are relatively low in comparison to any other city, which is very attractive. And now they're building up in infrastructure, things around that cost of living to make sure that people have activities that they can engage in and activities that they feel excited about. If you take Austin, just kind of like quick example, they kind of built that model, right? Like they have schools there that kind of attract talent, but what they started to do was build an ecosystem that founders and entrepreneurs in particular could start to thrive in, what did that do? That attracted Tesla, right? You get a Tesla now in your city and the entire city now benefits from that, right? Tesla created over 30,000 new jobs in 2021, not exclusively in Austin, but when you have that type of impact in your city, it opens you up to so much more. And it's ultimately an economic benefit as well. And so I'm interested and curious to see from Kansas City standpoint, what will we do to make that happen? Oracle just bought Cerner, which I think it was a $41 billion acquisition. Um, Cerner is one of the biggest employers here in Kansas City. And so now it'll be really exciting to see if some of that expansion mindset that Oracle has, how will that translate to Kansas City and how will they continue to bolster the community and invest in entrepreneurs almost that are within their organization that can maybe spin out and start to do different things. So I think there's a lot of different options Stuff that's happening, but it's pretty exciting to
1: see how the city has been on board with it. Good. That's good to hear. Let's say we picked up your pin and we had to place it somewhere else. They kicked you out of Kansas City, (laughs) You did all that you can do. You can't come back. They take the key for the city away from you. Where is that yellow brick road leading if it can't lead to Silicon Valley? Man. See, this is what we talk about, just like personal lifestyle, like what I prefer.
0: Love Kansas City. Hey, Shout out Kansas City. But I would probably end up in Southern California. You can't beat the weather. I think uh, I have some of my good friends from college all live there. So and I'm talking about San Diego, LA area. And I think California just is one of those places where people don't sacrifice lifestyle for career. Like it's very much so... I'm going to wake up every day and I'm going to be happy. And then I'll kind of figure out everything else. So not to say that doesn't happen in other places, but I think the lifestyle there is just, it's just awesome. So I've always said to myself, like if I can maybe fortunately, if I'm blessed enough, get some property in Southern California, I will, cause that's going to be a place I frequently visit. But yeah, man, I'm still trying to decide if, if setting roots in Kansas city is the right thing to do. I'm also thinking outside of myself of like,
1: what could I do for the city too? Yeah. I do want to just make a plug here too. I'm a huge proponent of considering a bi-city lifestyle. I guess you could say that or living in two different cities. Uh, cause I think in us, we like the city vibe and the hustle and bustle, but we also like somewhere where we can just escape, where we can chill, where there's no expectations, or if there are, there are ones that we set. So I just want to make, make a plug for that. I couldn't here. agree more. So as we kind of approach the, the tail end of this, we also want to like, a little bit more reflection time for you because you are at an inflection point. The city's at an inflection point. But let's look backwards. Can you name or think about a pivot that you made in your life or in your career that changed everything? Because in the startups that are coming across your desk, typically the company that's there is not the company that it was two years ago. Maybe similar for you, Nas. Maybe the Nas we see today isn't the same one we saw when you were 21, 22. So is there a pivot or a point in time that you can point to where you had two choices to make and the choice that you made is why you're here today? Absolutely. So I want to say 2019 it was, which is, wow,
0: what, three years ago now? It's crazy. 2019, I had gotten into a disagreement with the CEO at the startup that I was helping build. Took me under his wing, taught me how to run the whole business, giving me game. Really was grooming me to be like, hey, look, here is how you build a multi-million dollar company. We disagreed on particularly career path and the things that I was interested in, the things that I wanted to do. And this is actually like the first time that I've like told this story like publicly. And so basically it got to a point where I had to choose myself, like either bet on myself and my ambition and my dreams with all the risk. Or say, but I can hold off on that. Let me just stay here, keep my mouth shut and just kind of walk walk this path and see what happens. And so ultimately in the process of trying to figure that out and being unhappy with where I was, I decided to bet on myself. Now, I was 22, 23. I didn't have very much money in the bank. I left this startup, which first of all, I was making a startup salary. So (laughs) keep that in mind too. There wasn't much that was even going in. I had probably six months of savings and my apartment lease was about to end. And so I had to try to figure out what was I going to do? I mean, it was a time where I wasn't panicking, but I was very much so praying multiple times a day. And in that time period, instead of, instead of folding, I said, if I'm going to bet on myself, then I really need to bet on myself. I took the money that I had and I started two businesses. I started. Real estate marketing consultation and I started a real estate investment group. And through those, I was able to make enough connections to land at a couple of different other contracted roles as a startup. And within that six months, like right as I got to exhaustion funds, I had found a way to bring in income from four or five different places. And that for me was the turning point where similar to the conversation we had earlier, I said to myself, I don't want my fate to be in England's hand. Like the fact that This man could walk in the room and I could say how I felt about something that I felt was completely natural, but it rubbed him the wrong way. And now my fate is literally his hands where he can decide whether he wants to pay me or not, which ultimately results in me feeding myself. I didn't ever want to be in that position again. And if I was, I wanted it to be on my terms. And so just that moment of, I would say, me deciding how to rely on myself in a sustainable manner made me into who I am today and has put me in a position where I will not or I'm predicating not
1: accepting anything that doesn't serve in my best interests. Got it. So now the training wheels are off or you're out of the plane (laughs) landing, however metaphor we want to kind of have this. So you're out there in the market now and people are judging you based on you. Like it's you who show up and they're making assessments purely based on you and your brand. What other brands and communities have been the most helpful in growing Nas? I love to read,
0: right? So let's just let's just maybe like start there with in terms of like different resources. Huge fan of books like The Alchemist, but also the Robert Green's Mastery, 48 Laws of Power. That type of thinking where it's, I would say, romanticized in terms of the long-term vision, but very practical in terms of the micro day-to-day. Those types of things have really helped me. I mentioned earlier the fraternity. So I'm a brother of Alpha Phi Alpha Fraternity Incorporated. Having like-minded individuals who are high-achieving and ambitious around me that also look like me has been both a motivation and inspiration, but also a support anchor. Venture for America, the fellowship, there are 200 fellows in my class, but there's also 10 classes before us. And there's people that are all over the place that are building exciting things or are just crushing it as executives in their companies. These types of communities, and I would also say, like organizations and brands, and just resources, have helped me grow into the person that I am now, and continue to help me grow into the person that I want to be. As like I said, they not only serve as inspiration and support, but a level of accountability. Right? Like if you look across the table at Abraham, and he's been at every top law firm, and is a founder himself, and is investing in companies, like I don't see that as competition, or I don't see that as something that like is daunting. I see like you know, I want to ask questions. Like, I want to be like you. I want to learn from you. I want to grow from you. So I try to keep those types of people and keep myself plugged into those types of ecosystems to keep that, those, those, those wheels turning.
1: Very cool. So I'm reading Proverbs right now. It's talking about the importance of wisdom and value and wisdom more than even gold and silver. You clearly have it, a lot of it at 26. And so success with money is not outside the realm of possibility for you. Do you want to run a billion-dollar company? Why or why not? And we like the philosophical underpinnings in the responses to this question because <laughs> we've had people reject it entirely. We've had people say no because they feel like it'll change them. We've had people say yes because they feel like it'll change them in a positive way. For you, where do you fall on that continuum? I go
0: back to the more money, more problems, which I think is real. I think, so So at a very early age, I got taught there's kind of, Two books that you really need to read, two types of books, history books, because history always repeats itself, and autobiographies, because people that have created or built or done anything successful have usually written it down somewhere. And that's an experience that you can gauge and, and, and find. And so I say that to say the people that I've read about that are billionaires experience billionaire level stress. They experience billionaire level lifestyles. And I don't think that that lifestyle is for everyone, right? Like if you're someone who enjoys more of a low-key atmosphere, you want to have a family and like, really like that's just, those are your priorities. Maybe running a billion dollar company is not for you. If you're someone that just maybe wants to play all the time and just enjoy life, which is also fine. Maybe running a company, billion dollar company is not for you. When I think about running a billion dollar company, I think about having a multi a multi-thousand member family. And I think about being responsible for those thousands of people that are trying to build their lives, that are trying to feed their family, that are trying to set up college funds and healthcare and things like that. And I think I'm probably not there today, but I would definitely aspire to be there and to be that person that could create so much opportunity for so many people. That's what it really comes down to for me. Like, it's not, I want to run a billion dollar company because I want to have a $250 million yacht. I'm not Bezos. I would want to run a billion-dollar company to impact the world on a scale that is massive. And to see, hmm, if I run a billion-dollar company, how many millionaires can I create from that? And so that that would be the objective for me. And I still want to have a family, and I still want to enjoy life. I still want to play too, right? And so I think it comes into like, where's the balance? How do you set boundaries? What do you, what do, you do to really like own that? But that's definitely something that I aspire to do and something that I aspire to be.
1: Definitely. It seems like leverage is super important in that situation. If you're trying to get there by adding, it'll take you a really long time. But if you can get some multiplication and exponential, you might be able to move there a bit faster. We've talked a little bit about sort of how this podcast got started and the app launch parties we were throwing in Harlem and eventually traveled elsewhere. But I'll tee it up for you real quick. We were celebrating a founder Series A close, invited a bunch of people that I knew and didn't know to a party. When they came in, they scanned the QR code to learn who was in the room and where the bathroom was. And as they mingled over wine and pizza and got to know each other, after about a half an hour, we started the agenda. We started it with the same thing every time. I would intro, why are we here? We're here because less than 1% of tech startup capital goes to founders of color, Black people. But we can leverage the one thing that's older than capital, and that's people. So having 50 people in a room, using an app, giving feedback, engaging with it, that's actually costly in the marketplace. If you were to try to buy that, it would cost you more than what it was for us to throw this event. Anyway, after I gave that intro, we would have the person who was hosting us. So initially, my roommate, who's our living room doubled as a studio, but eventually we had one of my pastor's parsonage. and. He came and gave a speech about being on the same block as Madam C.J. Walker and Adam Clayton Powell Jr. It was just very chilly. Then we would have an interfaith blessing of the app to unify everybody, all to build up toward the founder's speech. And they give a short speech, four minutes, and then there's a question and answer portion. And we had VCs, angels, other founders, and then people who really just showed up. They didn't have a clue what was going on, but they got engaged immediately. At the end of the Q&A session, there has to be one question <laughs> that ends it. Let's say it's the end of the night. And the microphone comes, you, Nas, and you get a chance to ask this founder. You don't know who they are right now, but you get to ask them a question. What are you asking? What's your why? I think
0: we don't ask ourselves why enough. You usually answer what to some extent, maybe even how, but why? And I think that's a question that we should be asking ourselves regularly, almost like in quarterly outputs, right? Like, why am I doing this? Why am I trying to achieve this outcome, and what effect does that have? I'm like, am I
1: aligned with my purpose? So, talk about the why more too, because a couple of follow ups to that. Mm-hmm. One, what impact does asking why have on you to the point where asking that question will, you know, kind of change for somebody? And then, secondly, where is that why coming from? Is it something that I can create, or is it something that I'm searching for? Yeah, I think that that's the beauty of the question right? Like you inspire that person to really think through
0: what's my journey for and what's my purpose, right? And so for me to ask that question, it's not because I'm trying to be super deep and philosophical. I am trying to challenge that person though, to really understand what's their ultimate motivation and how do you continue to use that motivation when the business might go left, when your wife might, when a family member may die, I think remembering the why is what keeps you anchored in things. And a lot of the times people can't readily point to their why. And I would fully expect some people to be like, I don't know. I don't know. And my follow-up to that would be continue to search for that. Don't get so caught up in the objectives of tangibles and milestones and metrics that you're trying to hit that you forget that the greatest journey that we have in life is inward and is the self-discovery of really what we were put here to do and the gifts that we were supposed to give away. And I think like level setting that just regularly is something that not only will help you create more value with whatever you touch, it
1: ultimately creates more enjoyment for life. For sure. When you ask that question, do you get a sense that people's principles and values come out as they search for an answer? Like, What is it that you notice when somebody has been thoughtful in answering that question? Yeah, I think people all have different perspectives of their
0: why. And it's perfectly okay for someone to have or to be kind of attached to certain background principles, right? So someone that's maybe raised in faith has a different why from someone who's raised as an atheist. But I think ultimately what you uncover is what is important to people as individuals. Some people care more about systems and politics and society. Some people care more about uh, business and economics and finance. Some people care more about family. But like what makes a person whole? And what are the things that they most value? And so those are the things that I start to see come out of people is like, challenging to themselves of, oh, yeah, like what do I value? What do I care about? What is important to me? And that's what inspires me. Because also, too, when I'm thinking about surrounding myself with people, I want to know what's most important to them and what they're anchored by. And so those are those are the things that I start to see come out of people. And that just better helps me say, hey, look, is there a way that I can be valuable to
1: you in this journey? Yeah. And I'm sure it helps you in negotiation as well. So we're coming up on the last question here. I know we've been sitting, chilling out for almost an hour now, but I'm glad that we have because I've learned a lot from you. And you've kind of answered this question and it's emanated from kind of your presence here, your overall ethos. But what, in your own words, do you feel like is the most valuable thing that you do for your customers, clients, consumers?
0: I have like a practical answer and like a cheesy answer. I think I listen well. I make it my priority to always listen first and to listen twice before I speak. And I think sitting down with clients in the past, sitting down with founders, even sitting down with other investors, when you really listen and you can engage with, someone's objectives and their goals and what they want to do, you start to get really creative around how you can help them solve problems. And that's been, I think, one of my biggest superpowers. And then I would say the practical portion that comes after that is the strategic lens, which I feel like I have an innate ability to do, which is which is game strategy, that that problem, right? So I've listened to you now. I understand your why. I understand your values. I understand your objectives and where you're trying to go. Let's sit down and figure out how to get you there. Why is it so audacious to think that you can have everything that you want in life? I don't think it's audacious. I think it's realistic. And so I think a lot of what I get joy out of and where I've been most valuable to people is in understanding really at the core, what they're trying to do by listening to them and then literally helping them
1: create that into a reality. Wow. Would love to have you in the room when that needs to get done, because that is uh, that's super critical. So there is one more question, and that's because if I'm cleaning my house right now or apartment, <laughs> right, or I'm commuting to work or I'm on my computer uh, doing a task but still listening, and I really enjoyed what you had to say, and it resonated with me so well that it moved me to action, and I want to reach out to you today and get a response after this podcast ends. Where should I go?
0: Most active on Instagram at see your Chris, all one word, no spaces, underscores anything. I'm on LinkedIn. A little less active, but still active. I would say probably those are the two first places, 68.capital for sure. But yeah, follow me on Instagram, DM me. I try to check all my messages. I'm also like not an inaccessible person. Like I give my phone number out to people, my email. So yeah, I would say follow me on Instagram, go to our website, shoot you my email and we'd love to kind of chat through how it could be
1: most helpful. Absolutely. And I can back up what you're saying. You are available and accessible and much respect for that. It's been a great interview. Like I said, I've learned a lot and it's good to have a perspective of somebody who's worn multiple hats and somebody who has check writing ability sort of right now connected to 68. So we want you to have the last word to the audience and just, you know, leave us with some parting thoughts before we, we let you go. Again, thank you. I think in this conversation, I've not only learned more about myself,
0: but I've learned a lot about you, and I'm really inspired by the work that you're doing and how you're being intentional and building a community that's organic, that is also leading to a roadmap that we can look back on to say, hey, this is how things were created, and this is how we found value in problems or opportunities that we saw. So, major shout-out to you, major shout-out to the audience for whoever has listened to this thing. I am most passionate about people that are taking risk because to risk we must. The greatest hazard in life is to risk nothing at all. So I would just encourage people to continue to take those risks for things that they're passionate about, to take that leap of faith,
1: and know that you have people like me and yourself along the way to support you. Brilliant. Well, thank you for hopping in the booth and giving us a little taste of KC. Until next time, we bid you adieu. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for joining this week on Diverse Tech Founders with Abraham J. Williamson. If you found value in this show, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. You can do it right now. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would help us too. Thanks again.